Let's come to God in prayer now. Let's all pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've just sung, he is our King most wonderful, our conqueror renowned, seated at your right hand in heaven and in whom all joys are found. And we pray as we come to these words tonight, find an increasing joy in our Lord Jesus. Father, help me and help us all as we come to these verses, we pray in Christ's strong and precious name. Amen. Well, if you could please have your Bible open there at Luke chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 41 to 44 that we read earlier on uh, this evening. And as well as that, it would be very handy if you could keep a a finger or a bookmark or something in Psalm 110, which again we read earlier in our service tonight. And over these past few weeks here at, at Cromlin EPC, we've been working our way through Luke chapter 20. And this is a a chapter which recounts for us the events of the Tuesday of Holy Week. So the crucifixion is now just a matter of days away. And we find Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. And he's engaged in a series of different controversies with various different religious leaders who come to speak to him. And it would be worth our while just to pause and look back at all that has taken place in the temple so far on that particular day. Uh, These debates uh, between Jesus and the different religious leaders have produced a, a fair amount of heat but a great deal of light as well. So to begin with, the authority of Jesus was questioned. Uh, They came to him and said, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority, Jesus? The implication that Jesus offered in his response was that his ministry was backed up with the authority that John's ministry was also backed up with, John the Baptist's ministry. In other words, both John's ministry and his ministry carried divine authority with them. And then following that, Jesus told a parable, the parable of the wicked tenants entrusted with a vineyard. And in that parable, Jesus identified himself as God's beloved son who has been sent into the world and yet who would be rejected and killed by the leaders of God's people. And then thirdly, Jesus' opponents got political in their approach. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They asked Jesus. And Jesus said, well, yes, we should render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But much more importantly than that, we should render to God what is God's. And so if your coins bear Caesar's image, pay your taxes to him. 
But if you yourself bear God's image, you need to offer yourself to him. And then fourthly, Jesus was asked this ridiculous question about the resurrection. And he dealt with that question with great wisdom and truth. And by so doing, he affirmed the eternal hope of God's people in a glorious new creation. And so we've covered a lot of ground here in Luke chapter 20 so far as we've looked at these different controversies, haven't we? A lot of things that have been spoken about. And let's just try and sum it up in one statement. What has been revealed through Jesus' answers and Jesus' teaching in the temple that day? Here's a statement that tries to sum it all up. Jesus has divine authority because he is God's beloved son sent into this world to be rejected and killed by sinful men. But he calls on people to offer to God what is God's, even their very selves in repentance and faith. And he assures us of a glorious eternity for those who do. That is the gospel according to Luke chapter 20 so far. You might remember that the chapter begins, doesn't it, by telling us that Jesus was preaching the gospel in the temple when these people interrupted him. And we can say that he didn't let those questions stop him from what he was doing in the first place. Even in his answers to these trick questions, he's still preaching the gospel in the temple that day. And tonight we turn to this very, very brief section in verses 41 to 44, in which Jesus has got one more brief discussion that he's going to have with these different religious leaders. And in fact, it's not really a a discussion per se, because the leaders don't answer Jesus here. Only Jesus speaks in these verses, and the religious leaders stay silent. But Jesus has a, a question for them to consider And the question, very simply, is this. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? How can they say that the Christ is David's son? And as we look at how Jesus develops his argument in these four verses, we can sum it up under three simple headings. So to start with, notice this. The Christ is David's son. The Christ is David's son. The first thing we should consider is, well, what does that word Christ actually mean? Of course, it's a word, isn't it, that we're all very familiar with. But what does it actually mean, technically? It is a a title. It's not Jesus' surname. It's a title. But what does this title denote? The word Christ or Messiah in in Hebrew, uh, literally means anointed one. refers to someone who anointed by God in order to fulfill a certain office or to complete a certain task. And most often, uh, when we think about this word Christ, we're thinking of the office of a king. In the Old Testament, Uh, The kings of Israel were anointed by the the pouring of oil. They were anointed in order to fulfill that office of being king 
over God's people. And so in a certain sense, you could say that all of those Old Testament kings were anointed ones. In a sense, they were all Christ's messiahs in a limited sense because they were anointed with oil, appointed by God to that particular office. And of course, as you know, some of them fulfilled that office better than others. They were called to fulfill that office of king in line with the law of God. King David, for example, was a good king for the most part. And yet many of the kings of God's people in the Old Testament fell terribly far short of being the kind of king God wanted for his people. And yet running throughout the history of God's Old Testament people was this growing expectation that at some point a king like no other would rule over the people of God. He would be the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. He would be the ultimate king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And where should they look for this Christ figure, this perfect king, anointed powerfully for this task, sent by God to rule his people? Well, God made it very clear through his word that the Christ would be David's son. He would be one of David's descendants. So God gave that promise to King David in the form of a covenant in Second Samuel chapter 7. I'm sure you know this well-known story. King David is living in his beautiful palace. And yet the Ark of the Covenant is still being housed in a tent. And so David comes up with a plan. He wants to make a house, a temple for the Lord. And in some ways it's a good idea, but surprisingly, the Lord says no. And he turns the tables on David. And instead of David making a house for God, rather God is going to make a house for David. In other words, God is going to make a royal dynasty, a household out of the line of David. So this is God's promise to David there in 2 Samuel 7. It comes to him through the prophet Nathan. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And it has to be said that throughout that story of the Old Testament, this royal household of David went through a lot of ups and downs. Not least, of course, when the city of Jerusalem was defeated and the Davidic king at that time was carried off and put in prison in Babylon. And yet, nonetheless, this promise to the house of David was not cancelled. Through the prophets, God repeatedly reiterated this promise that the house and the kingdom of David would be established forever and ever. And this perfect, everlasting king would emerge from that beleaguered house of David to be king over God's people. 
So just to give you a couple of examples of that, you'll be familiar, of course, with Isaiah chapter 9, which anticipates the birth of this Christ figure. You know these words from last Christmas and every Christmas before that. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And in a similar way, Psalm 89 includes this promise of God. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David, his offspring, shall endure forever his throne as long as the sun before me. And you see, the Old Testament sets this promise before us, doesn't it? The Christ is David's son, this great promised anointed king to rule over God's people and to do so in an everlasting kingdom. This Christ will be born into David's household, one of great King David's descendants. And so don't misunderstand the question of Jesus that he's asking here. When he says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? He doesn't mean that idea is completely wrong. Now, what he means is, in what way is that true? In what way is that true? Yes, the Christ is David's son, but is that all that there is to say about the Christ and his person? that he is descended from David, and that's it? Or is there more to the person of the Christ than that? Is he more than merely the son of David? And of course, the answer to that question is yes, there is more to the person of Christ than simply being David's son. And that leads us to the the second thing we should notice from these words of Jesus here. And that is that the Christ is David's Lord. The Christ is David's Lord. And to make that point, Jesus turns to Psalm 110. It would be great if you could have that psalm open in front of you at this point, please. It's one of the most important psalms there is. I hope you realize that. I think I'm writing and saying that Psalm 110 is the Old Testament passage which the New Testament refers to more than any other passage. It's incredibly important in our understanding of Scripture. And here Jesus shows us why it is so important that we get a grasp of what this psalm is saying to us. It's a psalm written by David. And it's a psalm in which David describes the way in which the Lord, that is Yahweh, the covenant God, addresses his Christ, his promised anointed king. What kind of lordship, what kind of rule does God promise that the Christ will exercise? Well, we could spend a long time unpacking the lordship of Christ as it is set before us in this psalm. But just in the the short time that we have, let me just highlight just very quickly a number of the aspects of the Christ's lordship that this psalm mentions for us. 
So firstly, the Christ is the exalted Lord. He's the exalted Lord. Yahweh, the covenant God, says to the Christ, sit at my right hand. And to sit at the right hand of God is, of course, to be exalted to the place of honor, the place of authority. And so the Christ exercises his lordship from the throne room of heaven itself in the presence of God. And at the very least, we can say that there is something divine about this exalted Lord. He rules in close connection with God himself. And of course, we can go further still, can't we? We can say that the exalted Christ is himself divine. William Hendrickson says that in this psalm, God is promising his Christ such preeminence, power, authority, and majesty as would be proper only for one who, as to his person, from all eternity was, is now, and forever will be God. The Christ is the exalted Lord. And secondly, he is the victorious Lord. The victorious Lord. Verse 1 tells us that the Lordship of Christ will ultimately culminate in all of his enemies being made his footstool. And so in the end, the Christ will bring down all opposition against him, defeating them thoroughly and finally as the victorious Lord over all of his and his people's enemies. And thirdly, the Christ is the almighty Lord. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. In the power of God himself, the Christ exerts his lordship over all things. And even whilst his enemies are still at large, so to speak, even as his enemies are not yet subdued as his footstool, the Christ is still the almighty Lord, ruling even in the midst of his enemies. And fourthly, the Christ is the revered Lord. Verses 1 and 2 have spoken about how this Lord, this Christ, has enemies. And yet not everyone is his enemy, far from it. And you see, many, many people, many, many people will gladly submit themselves to the Christ as their Lord. And that is what verse 3 is pointing us towards. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours and David is picturing here an army of people a great gathering of people and they're all offering themselves to come and serve this Christ serve him in his purposes and to do so against the enemy and David tells us that these people are all glad to do so They don't have to be cajoled into serving their Christ. No, by grace alone, their hearts are inclined towards the Christ. And so as David puts it, they offer themselves freely to him. And says David, these people of Christ are clothed in holiness. The Christ is the revered Lord. And he is so in the sense that he has many people turning to him gladly. 
offering themselves to him freely and serving him in holiness. And as well as this, the Christ is the merciful Lord. And verse 4 takes us by surprise a little bit because it tells us, doesn't it, that the Christ is not only anointed by God to be the perfect king, but also he's anointed by God to be the perfect priest and to be that priest forever and ever. And so he is the one who will offer a sacrifice to, to atone for all the sins of all of his people. And in him, his people will receive the mercy of God. And because he is priest forever, he will always live to intercede for his people. Such is his mercy towards them. And yet it has to be said that it's a different story, isn't it, for those who continue to oppose him, those who continue to stand against him. And the last bit of the psalm tells us that Christ is also the judging Lord. The Christ is the judging Lord. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. It's a chilling picture, isn't it? A day of the Christ's wrath is coming, says David. And throughout all of the earth, the Christ's wrath will be poured out and judgment will be executed. It's a warning, isn't it, to those who have not yet turned to the Christ, that they're not safe unless they do so. And so they must, like those in verse 3, offer themselves freely to the Christ repenting of their hostility against him, trusting in his mercy as the perfect priest, submitting to his lordship as the perfect king, and then serving him in holiness. You can tell why this psalm is so significant in the unfolding story of the Bible, can't you? It describes for us so beautifully, so succinctly, and yet with great power, the lordship of the Christ. That he is the exalted, victorious, almighty, revered, merciful, judging Lord. And yes, the Christ is David's son, as we've seen already. And yet this psalm tells us that the Christ is so much more than being merely David's son. He's not just simply another king like David who appeared somewhere later on in David's family tree. No, he is great David's far greater son. And Psalm 110 tells us that the lordship of the Christ extends far above and beyond anything that the lordship of David when he was king achieved. And the point that Jesus is driving at here is that David himself understood that as he wrote this psalm. David himself understood that the Christ was his far greater son with a far greater lordship. And we know that because in this psalm, David refers to the Christ as my Lord. My Lord. That's how the psalm begins, isn't it? The Lord, that is Yahweh, the covenant God, says to my Lord, the Christ. And you see, David doesn't call the Christ my son. Here, even though technically speaking that would still be correct. 
But David understood that calling the Christ simply his son, his descendant, would be woefully inadequate. And so out of glad reverence for him, he calls him my Lord. Darrell Bock sums it up like this. He says, Jesus' point is simple enough. How is it that David can call a son, a descendant, by the title Lord? This is a significant act in a patriarchal society where a son is under his father. The answer is not a denial of Davidic sonship, but rather an implication that the Christ as David's Lord transcends him. And so yes, the Christ is David's son. And yet he is far more than that, because the Christ is also David's Lord. And that leaves us with just one further thing to realize. And that is that the Christ is Jesus. The Christ is Jesus. And surprisingly enough, Jesus doesn't say this explicitly in this part of Luke's gospel, does he? He makes it clear that as well as being David's son, the Christ is also David's Lord. But in terms of identifying who this Christ actually is, well, he leaves that question just hanging in the air for now, doesn't he? He doesn't actually say what the answer to that is. And yet, of course, if we've been reading Luke's gospel from the start, we know that all along Luke has been telling us that the Christ that the Jews were waiting for is Jesus himself. He is both the son of David and he is David's Lord. He ticks both boxes, if you like. As Christ, Jesus is the son of David. And yet also at the same time, he is the Lord of David. And all along, Luke has been pointing us in that direction. For example, when the angel Gabriel visited Mary in chapter 1, he said to her that her son will be great. And will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And then in chapter 3 verse 31. Lucas told us that Jesus was born into the house and line of David. In fulfillment of those promises that God had given to David. Then in chapter 18, the blind beggar was on the right lines, wasn't he? When he cried out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And in chapter 22, later on, when Jesus is on trial before the council, he will make it very clear that he is indeed the Christ. The council asked him, if you are the Christ, tell us. And he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God, fulfilling Psalm 110. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Do you see, Jesus is the Christ. He is David's son, but he is far more than that. He is David's Lord. And in the opening verses of Romans 1, the Apostle Paul brings these things together beautifully for us. He says that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. But not only that, as well as that, Paul goes on to say that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
And as the Christ, Jesus is the one who fulfills all of those lofty expectations of Psalm 110. He's the exalted Lord, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, reigning over the universe at the right hand of God, doing so to the glory of God and in the interests of his people, the church. He's the victorious Lord. He's defeated sin and death and hell, and one day all of his enemies will be put under his feet. He's the almighty Lord. He's reigning over all things with divine sovereignty and power. He rules even in the midst of his enemies, as David puts it. He's the revered Lord. And so as his gospel goes out into the world, millions of people respond by offering themselves freely to him in humble adoration, repenting of their sin, trusting in him, and thereafter seeking to follow him. And they turn to serve him in his purposes. And by grace they are clothed in holiness. He's the merciful Lord who was our great high priest, has offered the once and for all sacrifice to atone for all of our sins, to bring us to God when he died on the cross. And even now, as our great high priest, he's interceding for us. And he's the judging Lord. One day he will return again in judgment against all those who have remained opposed against him. Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Should make us all ask, shouldn't it? Where do I stand this evening before this Christ, this Lord Jesus? And if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the Christ, if he is the promised descendant of David who is Lord over all, well, what I do with Jesus is the most important matter there is in all the universe, isn't it? It all comes down to this, doesn't it? What do you make of Jesus? What do you think of him? What do you make of his claims to be Lord and Christ? Let me say that the only right response to Jesus is to relate to him in exactly the same way that David did in Psalm 110. And that is, you need to say to Jesus, my Lord, my Lord. That's what David calls him, isn't it? My Lord. And we all must do the same. Offer yourself freely to him in repentance and faith. And then live with him as your Lord, submitting to his lordship in every area of your life, obeying him as your perfect king, and resting in his mercy as your great high priest forever. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. I wonder tonight, what do you make of Jesus? What do you think of him? He is David's son, and yet he is far more than that as well. He is Christ, and he is Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ, 
And we thank you that in fulfillment of all of your promises to David, you sent his greater son, Jesus, into the world in order to be the Christ, this promised anointed king, reigning and ruling over your people forever. And we have seen this evening just something of the grandeur and the majesty of the Christ, this exalted, victorious, almighty, revered, merciful and judging Lord. And we praise you that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these great expectations held out by the prophets, that he is at one time David's son and David's Lord. And we pray, may he be our Lord as well. May we all this evening offer ourselves freely to him in repentance and in faith and live our lives serving him, clothed in holiness. And we pray all of this in his great name. Amen.